This episode is brought to you by Nature Street LLC, a premium all-natural CBD company with the goal of giving people an all-natural alternative that can help get through the rigors of daily life. They aim to provide 100% all-natural, pesticide-free CBD and hemp products that soothe the soul. Nature Street is a trusted resource for your CBD journey. Your mindset is their priority. Be sure you check out the description box for a link to their website where you can get some of their amazing all-natural products. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're getting to another great episode of Diary of a Mad Black Man. Um, if you don't know already, which I'm sure you do because you heard the intro, my name is Blake, and I have a very special guest. Um, her name is Sharon. She is the owner, CEO of Self-Care from Black, for Black Men. She is a healer. She is somebody who I have actually done some work with. I have connected with her through the socials, Instagram specifically, and we've been communicating for quite some time now. I know um, I've been following Self-Care for Black Men for, I want to say over a year, easily over a year. Um, so it's, it's been some time. So Shannon, I'm very excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be here. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good today. That's awesome. That's amazing. So for the people listening, um, go ahead and kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, pretty much um, with myself, I always like to tell people is that, um, I guess just to kind of start off, I'm involving. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I like to kind of say that because, a lot of times, you know, when we start, we end up kind of saying like what we do instead of who we are. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to change that. And so uh, so I start off by saying um, I'm involved in and pretty much one thing about myself is that I am definitely a person who have always been who always liked affirmations. And I discovered that I am affirmations. It's not that I like affirmations. And so in saying that, I lost a piece of that along the way of life just because of how our society is. Mm-hmm. Um, but by trade, um, I am a licensed clinical social worker. Um, I knew when I was in high school, you know, I wanted to help people help themselves. And so I've been in this field for over 20 years and along the way and along with my evolution, it kind of came into self-care just pretty much by my own, you know, personal experience with stress and things like that. And, um, and just kind of see that. And so I consider myself to be a self-care advocate. You know, I love, you know, anything dealing with self-care. I just love talking to people about, and again, I'm just a person, you know, full of information, like to share and just um, anything self-care. I'm kind of like it's fun and it's serious at the same time. Mm, very good. I like that. Self-care advocate. Um, so tell us a little bit about where you were born and tell us about your childhood. Yeah, um, pretty much. Um, I was born i say I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, and okay. and um, pretty much grew up in a low-income environment, uh, we're a low-income community, and from there, you see things and you hear things, and the only thing I can say is what, you know, the information you get on the news and even from the school, it didn't match up to my community. Um, because, you know, when they talk about low income environment, you know, they make it seem all bad, but I didn't have that experience because when you look Mm. at it as a whole, I even knew as a child, like, what are they talking about? Because it's only a small percentage. So I didn't identify myself in that way. Um, I grew up in a um, single parent home. Um, It was just me and my brother and my mom. And um, my mom, she worked two jobs, you know, most of the time. And um trying to think of what else. And just, um, I guess just in general, you know, uh, I'm an introvert. I usually tell people that I am a, if you look up, you know, the word and there's a picture, I am a true introvert. You know, it's like even though you have friends and things like that, but I really enjoy, 
you know, that solitude. And that's something that I've really come to embrace, especially once I understand it better. But yeah, I grew up in a um, single parent home and um, and just, you know, lots of love and caring. Uh, teasing too. I have to, you know, sometimes my brother don't like for me to tell, to, to say that, but he and his friends just used to te tease me so, so much. But I think that kind of helped, you know, mold me in certain ways of mm. just, you know, not to take certain things too serious um, and things like that. So, mm. but yeah. It sounds a lot about, like, um, I heard my sister when you said that. <laughs> because I used to definitely tease and pick on my sister a lot. So Snoop, I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> I, I definitely can relate to that being a, a big brother and having been the protector and the bully all at one time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's really awesome. So you said Columbia, South Carolina, correct? Mm -hmm. Actually, I've, I've met, it's funny, I've met a lot of people from the Carolinas. Okay. Um, yeah. But none of them really, really have stayed there. They've all kind of migrated out and, and found their own way. Uh, so it's very interesting. I know the Carolinas is one, I guess you could say a hot spot for people that I've met in the podcast world. But okay. I do want to ask you, I know you said you discovered very early in life that you wanted to do social work. So mm -hmm. was there a specific event that happened or was like a certain level of awareness that came about? What was it that that def that helped to create that moment where you were like, I'm going to do social work? I think that, like, the more I do my internal, my inner work now, um, at least started the past three years, I think that I just always had a sense of knowing, to be honest. And just like I was telling you that even as a kid, just by hearing things on the news and then the images and things from um, school and the teachers, you know, like how awful things are, I wanted to do something to help. Mm. You know, so I had that sense in me. And even though I didn't see it, you know, like in my neighborhood, because the way I looked at it is that, yeah, you have this huge neighborhood. But if they say everything is so awful, but you only have I mean, even if it's just one percent, you know, of people who is doing the bad right. thing, that's not many. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, again, I just had this sense of just wanted to help people just to be drawn to I guess you could say the world portrayed the um society portrayed the world bad and I wanted to make it good. <laughs> mm, mm, I like that. Yeah. So so what so take us a little bit down memory lane. What was that journey to get your license and, and start your career in social work like? Yeah when I um Pretty much when I first started, I knew I wanted to cancel. I didn't know exactly if it was going to be social work or not. And so my undergrad is in um, psychology and my minor is in criminal justice. Mm. And when I um, when it came down to my master's, because, of course, you know, you have to get a master's or a Ph.D., at least one of them. And so I looked at a couple of things and I was drawn to um, social work. I really was. I just felt like um, among the others that I can do more um, with it. And I, did, and I am mm. glad that I chose um, social work over the other master level um, entities because with psychology, for the most part, um, at least at that time, and even now, I would say, you know, it was usually you would get um your phd and i really wasn't interested in that um mm. anyway and so um so yeah so i got my um decided to uh well, i decided to work a year after i finished my undergrad in which i did do that started my master's program and actually i started out at the university of south carolina and then i um, ended up moving to virginia and i finished my master's program at norfolk state um, okay. And so I finished there and actually I ended up moving to uh, Maryland. And so I was first licensed in Maryland. And, and I'm glad I had that experience because it exposed me to some things that would not have been exposed to in South Carolina because it's just different dynamics. And um, each state is different. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> just meaning some states are more progressive and some 
aren't in South Carolina is one of those states that in some areas this is not as progressive. And mm. so it shows me some things in my field regarding getting the highest licensure and things like that. Cause at the time, South Carolina, it wasn't needed. And, um, but anyway, I took the steps that, you know, that was needed um, to get my license. And actually I ended up moving back to South Carolina and I worked at a place where I was able to get uh, my supervision. And that's really good because supervision is something expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even mm-hmm. back then. And so I was able to do that uh, and, you know, and became, um, um, again, each state is different of how you become licensed and, and what it means. And so, but anyway, at that time, I, you know, got the highest level of license and did that and you know but pretty much I've always you know done some kind of work in social work or in mm-hmm. mental health or DSS you know Department of Social Services and things like that but yeah that's the kind of the journey of my um, license because you also have to get supervision before, uh, before you uh, take the uh, test you know and that thing mm-hmm. so. so like I think it's really dope, like, because one, I know that each state is different in how they, the not only the licensure requirements, but how they kind of facilitate mental mm-hmm. health services and different laws mm-hmm. surrounding mm-hmm. Um, people like in crisis and things like that. Each state is very different. And I've had a lot of experiences in that. So throughout your career of 20 years working in the field, um, I know you said you worked in a lot of different areas. When did you want to I know now you're focused on more like the self-care, but what was the kind of mental health journey like? Like what were your experiences working with people specifically um, surrounding mental health? Okay. Um, One thing I want to say, a lot of my work surrounding around um, crisis work. So dealing with people in crisis. Okay. um, For the most part, I mean, there were periods that I might have didn't do that. But even like if that wasn't my primary job, I always volunteered, you know, to work part time or to do a crisis line or something like that. So I just want to put that out there. Mm -hmm. But regarding my career, um, initially, I started out working with children. And so I worked um, in um, mental health in an outpatient um, clinic. I worked inpatient. Um, and while I was working um, on my master's, I worked in, you know, residential um, treatment center and group homes. Um, and then after that, that's when I worked in outpatient, inpatient. And then when I started working with adults and then I worked um, pretty much like in specialized um, programming um, for adults, like in day programming and things like that. Um, also ended up working uh, for an insurance company. And actually, I had worked for an insurance company for a good many of years. And I really did enjoy that because it gave me a different perspective. And I always say that because I tell people it made me a better uh, clinician because of the fact of kind of like what the insurance company was looking for and what was needed. Because one thing... It was a health insurance company? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, got you. Yeah, pretty much is doing uh, pre-certification when someone goes into the hospital or need outpatient services and things okay. like that. Because one thing that, um, you know, I'm not saying, and it depends on which insurance company it is too, but generally, you know, uh, when it comes to providers, a lot of times we'll say, oh, the insurance company don't want to pay. They're giving us a hard time. But one thing that, one thing that came up and, and, and we would challenge some um, providers on this. Okay, we hear what you're saying about this patient and they're going, and this was before parity as well, but even with parity too, but this, you know, this patient have, you know, um, a lot of symptoms, a lot of things going on and you're providing treatment but we had to start asking providers, what are you doing different? You, you know, because mm-hmm. if this person, especially like when it comes to inpatient or partial hospitalization, specialized treatment. Okay. Yes. This patient is in need of treatment. We agree with you, 
but they have been through your treatment program like four or five times. Mm. So what's going to be different in your treatment for this particular patient so that they can get better? And even though we know that sometimes, you know, there are some other dynamics that can go along with that, but sometimes as providers, we do need to tweak something. Are we really individualizing, you know, what they would call the treatment plan, but individualizing the services to really meet their need and not just saying, oh, they need treatment, they need treatment, they need treatment. And then they end up, uh, we end up really providing the same services that we do for everyone else. So that was um, a really good learning experience, you know, when it came, it just allowed me to kind of look at it from a different view. And that's why I said it made me a better clinician um, mm. because it's kind of like, what am I doing as a clinician to make it better for the person? It's not just the fact that they need the services, but how can I truly, you know, cause we say meet people where they are, but yeah. you know, sometimes with, um, cause it's a system, you know, depends on, you know, not unless um, it's, um, I think people who do um, private practice, they have a little bit more leeway, so they may be able to do, you know, different things. Um, but when you work for a system, sometimes, you know, it it can be challenging. I'll put it like that. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I remember, um, and this is more or less speaking to my own experiences. It's kind of like I went to the doctor, told them what was going on, and they would just give me some medication. Then it wouldn't work or I have some side effect and they just give me another medication. And then before I knew it, I was on seven different medications and I'm like, what is going on here? And they're like, well, maybe yeah. we need to try something else. And I was, at, I was at the point I was like, I'm not taking another pill a day, you know, because it got to the point that I've, well, I've always kind of felt this. I, I had a lot of distrust with the healthcare field period like just mm -hmm. the way things were done i knew things were not exactly right and, and that's not to like like bring shame or anything because i definitely appreciate the medical field and the people that are medical professionals because they have saved my life but there have also been some who just kind of treated me like how i mean, I mean this isn't like a, a fast food restaurant where some people just want cheese and no cheese kind of situation if, if that makes sense so yeah. that the individualization of treatment and care is very important. I'm happy that you were able to recognize that and learn that during your experiences because it's it's very important. And I know for myself, one one of the things that I want to advocate for while being an advocate is how services are provided or facilitated to people. Uh, specifically for, for Black men, our issues may, you know, be written in the DSM, but our treatment needs to be different because culturally we are very different in how we view mental health, how we view services, and even like for myself, how I view the medical field in general. Mm -hmm. So at, at what point, I do want to get into this question. How, at what point did you want to transition and kind of do something on your own? And you wanted to work specifically with black men? Um, because I do just want to go ahead and say this, too. I appreciate um, self-care for black men. Uh, your posts, I watch them all the time. Even when I have my moments, sometimes I do go to your page. and like, let me go. In. I know I'm going to see something that's going to hit the way it needs to hit. So I definitely appreciate you for that. But what made you transition to have that focus on self-care for black men? Yeah, yeah. Um, pretty much with self-care for Black men, it came out of, I guess you could say it's kind of twofold. Um, first of all, I'm still doing, I guess you could say, my full-time stuff. So mm -hmm. I'm still doing that. And so self-care for Black men is definitely my baby. So it's expanding and evolving. And so probably the best way to describe what, what motivated me is kind of twofold. It's a uh, personal experience with men. And when I say that, meaning I, I'm going to say personal and professional. Um, and when I say that, meaning my observation and conversation with me, black men and having um, like, I'll just say having a stressful moment myself. So it made me, look at things a whole lot closer and mm -hmm. then that made me expand on it more 
meaning even professionally to say, okay, well, what's going on here? Are black men getting the care, what they need? And then, and also during that particular time, I'm saying that particular time, but it also expanded me through my own self-care. And so again, in, you know, observing black men, having conversations with black men, and in hearing, you know, what black men are saying, it's like, there's a need out there, you know, and there's a big need out there. And so that is what, you know, pretty much drove me to wanted to help and to wanted to start something for black men. And then when I did that, I, you know, pretty much, you know, got on Google and I said, okay, what's out there already? You know what I mean? And, and actually, I was pleasantly surprised that there were some things out there it was more than what I expected. Because, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of times yeah. I hear, you know, because black men, you know, of course, it's, it's not going to amount to what's out there for women. Um, but, you know, in general, men and especially black men would say, oh, nothing is out there, you know, for us. Yes, there is. There's stuff out there. Um, it's just a matter of, I just say when men are ready, then, you know, there, there are places who are welcome them. But yeah, it's, it's pretty much in knowing that men do um, suffer in silence. You know, I um, definitely see that and hear that. And so in recognizing that need and then also that sense of knowing what community is like and needed, even though culturally, when I say culturally kind of like in present time now, um, in, you know, our generation, um, it's kind of been lost with community. And so mm-hmm. in trying to build that up, you know, because even with self-care for black men, again, it's still in its infancy, you know, and, and we'll talk more about, you know, like what my vision is for it and everything. But yeah, for the for the beginning um, of it, for its um, birth, it was really out of again my observation and interaction and conversations, you know, with men and seeing that there is a need out there. Yeah, can you? Um, I, I'm really interested to know more at like like what I, mean, I know there's certain things you obviously can't say specifically about patients or anything like that. But what were some of the common themes or common concepts that would come up in your conversations and observations that let you know that there's a need there. And, and, I, and I speak for myself, like one of the things that I still kind of struggle with to, to this day is the idea of taking daily medication. Like I'm not super opposed to it, but I'm not hundred percent for it either. You know, if I can manage this on my own, I will. Um, I even had a conversation with my doctor not too long ago. I mean, as soon as like two weeks ago, where she was like, hey, do you, I mean, are you sure you don't want to try this medication? I'm like, mm, let me give it like another month or so with therapy and things like that. So I, I really want to kind of um, understand more of like the common themes that fr- that you observe and, and from your conversations with men. Yeah. Again, one of them is that men suffering in silence. That is definitely a common, common, common theme. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that even for men to even recognize that there's something going on and not that there's anything quote unquote wrong with them. Um, and really that's for anybody as a whole, but meaning that my conversations with some men is that until they either heard a podcast or saw, saw something on YouTube or had a conversation with someone that they didn't even realize because, you know, in our society, in our community, a lot of times things, you know, we're in survival mode, so they didn't even realize that they were suffering, you know, with anxiety or depression or anything like that. Um, and just the, um, I would just say the distrust, you know, of, I would say professionally, what I've seen is that uh, it can't, it can't, I put, I'm going to say it like this. 
It can depend on where it is. But in generally, when it comes to the medical field, the medical field is a field on paper, it may say patient, uh, patient centered, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. but in real life, it's do what I tell you to do, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. so, you know, do a person really do have, you know, I guess you say truly making informed decisions and able to have self-actualization, you know? So it's, it's, it's almost that sense of, do I want to go somewhere where somebody's telling me what to do? Like someone wants help and maybe want some advice, but that's kind of, or guidance, should I say, not even advice, it's guidance. You know, that's what it really is, is, is helping the other person see, you know, certain parts of themselves that they just may not be able to see. And that's the wonderful part of themselves. And even sometimes, you know, parts of yourself that um, may need some assistance in being lift up, you know, mm. but yeah, but, it, but there's a big history. I had no idea of the history behind it, even in, be, in being in mental health regarding the uh, mistrust until I uh, came across Dr. Joy DeGruy, her, um, you know, she's the author of post-traumatic slave syndrome. Syndrome, mm. and um, she talked about some things, and I'm like, they didn't tell us this in uh, social work 101, <laughs> policy 101 regarding yeah. the history of mental health, especially when it comes. To, I mean, black as a whole, you know what I'm saying? And so, I mean, just like racism is a systemic thing, and so you wonder mm. why black as a whole don't go to you know, especially to go and get help and things like that is because there was a time where blacks were labeled like, I can't remember the, the name of the diagnosis, but it was a a white doctor. And I'm not even sure if the person was a doctor, but I think, I think they were. But let's just say a white doctor had put in a paper in a journal to say that, um, I can't remember what the word is, but something is wrong with black if they run away. Mm, I remember that. Yeah, because I remember the um, actually the episode with with another doctor I met. Um, she's called the mom. She always up the momatrician, uh, Dr. Lulu. Shout out to Dr. Lulu. Um, and she was the first one that kind of reintroduced me to this history that black people have with mental health and talked about post-traumatic slave syndrome mm-hmm. and how back then if if your slaves ran away again I, the the term escapes me as well but it's something along the lines of like they were crazy essentially the term yeah, like yeah. They, they, something what there was a, a sense of a mental instability you know you never knew how they were going to respond or react and then when you think about the behaviors that a slave may be displaying as they're trying to run away, as they're literally fighting for their life. So how we were also kind of criminalized in in the same Mm -hmm. sense for how we were behaving and trying to escape from slavery. And it kind of transitioned to um, several other generations. So now we kind of know that the stigma surrounding mental health kind of comes from that because Mm -hmm. it's like, why, you know, therapy, counseling is kind of like a, a, a white person thing or you know black specifically with black men you know we don't talk about our emotions it's kind mm-hmm. of a girl thing so these kind of societal standards that surround us as black men that are embedded not only within us but within our community and society as a whole further have us suffering in silence like you said have us not trusting people in the medical field have us afraid to be vulnerable and to talk about the things that we're dealing with. And I know for myself, it wasn't until I really sat back and had to confirm within myself, like I have a problem. Like, and for me, it was when I was really struggling with alcoholism. And I I think I might've said this in, in a previous episode, but it wasn't until it was early in the morning, like not even like I don't even think the sun was up and I was finishing a bottle of wine and throwing the bottle into the trash can just so nonchalantly. But hearing the the clack and the cling of all the other bottles that were in my trash can, 
it was like that that was a moment for me and i mean of course it was outside of the medical field and everything like that but i knew especially with my own knowledge of, of alcoholism and addiction and stuff like that i was like i have a problem and so trying to navigate and heal myself or fix myself through that through the medical field and also being a teacher at the time and not wanting to come out and just openly admit like hey i'm alcoholic or i think i have a battle with alcoholism because you know the fear of losing my job and my career and and all these other things that i went through um so because of because of my addiction and because of what i was going through because i was trying to suppress emotions and feelings and things like that so through my journey and again, going back to this post-traumatic slave syndrome, it's very powerful to know that society has, some people in society have kind of constructed things to be the way they are. And especially from a system standpoint, we talk about systemic racism and white supremacy. A lot of people, I think, are aware of the fact that the things that we are going through as a people is by design like we're supposed to be feeling like this we're supposed to be going through like this and that i'm not saying that because it's right but for me once i was able to recognize that it helped me to be in a better place to deal with it and so um i do want to ask you what has it been like or what have been some experiences you could share doing the work that you do um, in combination with self-care for black men would have been some of the kind of new revelations and things that you have discovered to help black men. Hmm. That there are a lot of uh, men who want help. Mm. Yeah, there are. Yeah. And there still is a lot of men who still may not either one realize that they need support and encouragement and need healing. Um, and then those who may recognize it some, but just still had not gotten to the point where they're ready to reach out, mm. you know? Because those who are going to come, you know, they're going to come and they're going to, you know, they may sit a little bit, and but they will eventually come. Um, but for, again, some just may not even recognize that they are in need of support and healing. And then there are some that may, you know, kind of like how you were, you know, in a sense where, okay, something's going on, but am I ready? And then, you know, is that trusting? So those are, I would say, some of the things that um, I, I do end up um, seeing and encounter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's, it, it's one thing to say, and I, and I speak for myself when I say it, it was one thing for me to say, hey, okay, I have a problem. And it was a n whole different conversation, mm -hmm. which is I need help to fix this problem because mm -hmm. I can't do it by myself. And that's one of the reasons mm -hmm. why I've been on the journey that I've been on through my podcast and through, I mean, the past couple of years of my life is because it, it wasn't until a couple months after I left my teaching job and I was kind of just out here just doing whatever to, just to keep moving forward that I realized that I do need help and I need to take this help seriously. And I knew that just going to see a therapist just to go, just to say, just to check a box and say, I'm going to see a therapist wasn't enough. I had to really dig deep within myself and not only use the tools and resources that I was being provided, but also continuously seek help in whatever areas of life that I needed. And to be honest, it has not been an easy process at yeah. all. And so I can definitely attest to the fact of how difficult it must be for some black men out there who are kind of just now starting that journey. Because um, I think about myself three years ago this time and where I was and the things that I was dealing with mentally. And even still, I mean, to this day, the things that I still struggle with and I still need help with and things that I still have yet to really tell my therapist about things I still yet to really unpack with anybody about. So it's like, 
once you start this journey, you realize that, and this is something I've learned recently with therapy, it's not about the destination of healed. It's more of the journey of healing that where the focus and attention needs to be because as I've begun, Began to unpack more and more. Um, I'll say probably within the past like three to six months has been very. It's been, it's been an awakening period for me, mm-hmm. a deep awakening period to understand that I'm extremely trauma traumatized, PTSD, all these different labels and things I could probably put on myself. But before I even get to that point of accepting a diagnosis of, you know, officially getting on a medication for a specific diagnosis. I want to know that I'm okay with the help that I'm going to be receiving. And I also want to fully understand what it is that I may have going on. So um, I do, I do want to ask you another question in regards to that. Like what, what is the process like, from I, I would like to more from a professional standpoint in helping somebody like from crisis to being more stable because um, I, I know from my understanding like when somebody's in crisis there's like a certain level where it may need somebody may need immediate like inpatient support so from that what is that journey like for a person from a professional standpoint that you can share Okay. Before I answer that, though, I want to kind of go back to what you were just talking about regarding Mm -hmm. um, healing is a journey. And Mm -hmm. the main thing I just want to say about that is that that is pretty much I feel like that is what self-care is for because of the fact, you know, one of the things I tell people is that when it comes to self-care, is that self-care is not when, self-care is now, because it's not like when you need therapy, because uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens before, uh, because I even have come to realize too, it's like, well, what are we doing every day? Is it's the stuff that we're doing or not doing every day that really impacts us? So, you know, what are we doing on a daily basis intentionally you know, um, you know, uh, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and even financially. And that's going to help us along the way. And the more that we're in tune with ourselves, because even though you were saying that there are some things that you have not unpacked with your therapist or with Mm -hmm. friends, really, whether you unpack it with them or not, is really, you know, if that's something you decide to do, What's more important is when you can come to a place where you can unpack it with yourself. And that's where mm-hmm. the self-care comes into place because it's a, it's a process, you know, it's like developing the skills and the things that you need in order to support yourself in yeah. order to get that, you know. And, you know, yes, therapy uh, can be helpful in those things and in medication, but also all of these other tools and practices and rituals. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little later too. That's going to be really beneficial because therapy and medication alone um, is not sustainable for our yeah. well being. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. I'm, I'm I'm learning that myself. Is like I know that like therapy, like the way I want to say, is like like therapy's cute. Like it helps a little bit, you know what I'm saying. But I know that there are so many other factors in my life, from financial stability, my environment. I mean, my 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 relationships with my family, um, relationships with my friends um intimate relationships that I, that I desire to have so there's a lot there's like so many different levels and so many different i guess you could say departments in my life that i know are influencing these behaviors and how i feel and, and my mental stability at this time so it's not like there's just one set fix and and i'm really happy you said that because it's not like just because i go to therapy every week and i take this medication every day like everything's going to be better there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. So I definitely appreciate you saying that. Yeah, yeah. Now, getting back to the question, can you repeat it? <laughs> yeah, so I want to I kind of talk about uh, 
like crisis and and what it's like for because I I, I let, me, let me say it like this first. I have been confined to a mental institution before involuntarily and voluntarily for my own well-being. And so for the people listening, I, I want my audience to kind of get an understanding into what that process is like from a professional standpoint. Um, I've talked a lot about it from, from, from my perspective. And th- another reason why I'm asking you this question is because I don't want people to, like how I was at one point in time, live in fear of the process of mm-hmm. calling a hotline or of calling 911 and seeking help um, for either themselves or a loved one um, because it's very necessary. So I, I want to kind of have a, a foundation or, or, or just some information on, on what the process typically looks like, because I do understand that every state is different um, and every situation is different as well. But in a general sense, um, let's say somebody like calls a crisis hotline, uh, what is the process for them to get help from that point going forward? Yeah. And that's a really good question. And one thing that I, because um, actually currently now I work for um, a call center for behavioral health. And um, I kind of I kind of say, wow, it's taken me back um, pretty much years and years ago when I first started in this field anyways. It's almost like the end is the beginning. So I know mm. this is where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> mm. But um, but yeah, um, but in saying all of that, one thing that I discovered is that a lot of times people don't understand the process, you know, based on what you were saying. So if someone calls um, a crisis line um, for help, whether it's the person themselves or a family or friend, um, one of the things that we look at is like what what is the need? But let's just say if someone is suicidal, I'm going to use that one because that does mm-hmm. you know end up happening um, sometimes. If someone is suicidal, um, if uh, most of the time it's a family member who's calling for someone. Sometimes it's the patient themselves, but regardless of who it is. You know, we'll ask them, you know, certain questions to kind of see where the risk is. Because sometimes somebody can say something to the extent of, you know, I don't want to wake up in the morning, but they have no intention of killing themselves or thinking about killing themselves or anything like that. But somebody else was concerned about them. And, you know, we'll talk to them just to kind of see, you know, what the next step will be. And if it doesn't require anything else, because most of the time, most people just need someone to talk to, just to, mm-hmm. to be listened to, and we'll do that. But if it requires anything more, such as meaning that the person is thinking about killing themselves, and they can be thinking about wanting to kill themselves, they may have a plan, uh, and they may have intention. Sometimes people have a plan and no intention. And I always tell people, don't get into all of that. Allow the professional to, you know, decide. And, and that is one of the reasons why they need to have an evaluation. And it's called a risk assessment so that that can be determined. And mm-hmm. so it doesn't matter because sometimes when it comes to family and friends, like for the person who is saying that they're suicidal or they want to kill themselves, especially if they say it multiple times. Sometimes the family and friend would say, oh, were they doing it for attention? They're not going to do anything. Um, Or they tried it before. And sometimes they still, sometimes, unfortunately, people don't take it seriously, even if someone attempted suicide before. Um, But each time it needs to be taken very serious. And again, to allow the professionals to assess that risk, because each time it can be totally different. That's the whole purpose of the evaluation, Mm -hmm. because each time it's different and it needs to be evaluated. And when it is evaluated, when we do the evaluation, the whole purpose of it is to, you know, to assess the risk and to determine if the person is in need of, you know, inpatient level of care or if they can be safe, you know, outpatient. And, and I know you had mentioned something earlier regarding, you know, inpatient and what does that mean? You know, like sometimes when people hear involuntary commitment, you know, sometimes they want to hear that. It just really depends on the situation of whether or not someone has to be, you know, um, 
the, the court has to be petitioned for someone to be involuntarily committed. And even when it comes to that, each state is different. And I want to say most states, most of the time it means to get the person to the hospital to be evaluated. Um, if the person is in need of it, then they can, you know, then they will be admitted. If the person is not in need of it, then they would be discharged. Some states may have it mandatory where they stay, you know, a certain number of days. Um, but then I want to say most states have it if the hospital, you know, whatever the hospital decides is the outcome, meaning that if the risk is low, the person would be discharged. And then if the risk is high, the person would be uh, admitted. But yeah, it's, um, you know, we realize that, you know, it can be scary, especially with the different stories that people hear about going to a facility. And um, when it comes to the professionals, you know, um, we're obligated by law regarding certain things, but it's all, you know, to keep the person safe. Um, it's all, you know, to, to help the person um, in that acute state, you know, to, um, I guess you could say, to see life, um, to know that they matter, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I think, um, it's in. I, I want. I want to say just. I'm, I'm gonna say it like this. It, it's it's important for people to understand that, and and, and this is just just my, my my opinion that regardless of what the process begins like, because there's a lot of different ways. Because like you said, each case is different. Each situation is different. Um, I think it's going to be most important, or one of the things that's very important for people to understand is that it's going to be a process regardless. It's going to be a process of understanding, of learning, and one of the things that's going to help the process be easier, in my opinion, is the commitment to the process. Um, it reminds me of one of my, my mentors. Um, she actually recently passed away, but um, Doc, my um, one of my mentors told me, you have to trust the process. And it's now that I'm 10 plus years out of, well, I'm not 10 years out of college, but since undergrad, yeah, like seven, eight years, um, to understanding what that means to trust the process. And even in the process of my own journey, I, I speak for myself in saying this, and even the things I've been dealing with recently and going through therapy and trying to be a podcaster and start my own business and coming out of a global pandemic and things like that, it's like I'm having to consistently remind myself that this is a process and it's not going to happen overnight. And I think about the past three years of my life, like where I am now is certainly not where I was three years ago. And at the same time, I'm also able to recognize that where I am now is, is definitely not where I want to be next year. So um, to, to anybody listening, understand that you have to be able to trust yourself first in the process and receive information and, and and not be afraid to question that information but you have to also find somebody that you can trust yeah and so for me it's always been a counselor or a therapist after like four or five sessions in i find myself able to feel comfortable enough to trust them um, because i also understand the laws behind doctor patient confidentiality or I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole today, but um, a part of me beginning to trust somebody else was that I began to trust myself. Mm -hmm. I trusted myself enough to confide this with my therapist. I trusted myself to share this with my therapist because I'm trusting myself to heal from this and i'm trusting myself by sharing this is going to somehow unlock and provide a space for someone else to look at it from an objective standpoint in a sense as well as be able to look at it from a perspective that i may not have and it's going to help me to process that and heal from that so um th thank you for sharing that. I, I think that's, that's very dope um and i want to kind of um just a couple more questions is where do you see self-care for black men going? Um, I know you said you still have your professional kind of nine to five situation and um, self-care for black men is your, is your baby. 
Um, yeah. So where, what are some kind of things that you want to share with where you would like to see this grow in the future? Yeah, pretty much my vision for um, self-care for black men is like one of the things is for men to, you know, um, heal, thrive and grow. And so in saying that, especially when it comes to the healing part of it, by me being in this field for a long time, I always felt like something was missing, but I didn't know what that was myself until I went through, you know, my own personal uh, journal of um, stress. And I got introduced to yoga and meditation and energy work. And that's when I really found my true purpose, you know. Uh, social work was just an introduction. And so in saying that, that my vision for self-care for black men is to integrate, you know, um, um, is to integrate yoga and meditation and other type of, um, I guess you could say, rituals and practices to help. Um, Dr. Gail um, Parker, she's a psychologist and a uh, yoga therapist, and she's been, she's probably been a therapist just as long as she's, I mean, she's probably been a yoga, been uh, practicing yoga as long as she's been um, a psychologist. And one thing that she has said is that, and she specializes in restorative yoga, and she has a book, I should know the name of the book, I have it. Um, I think it's called Restorative Yoga for um, Ethnic. I can't remember the name of it right now. So forgive me, Dr. Parker. (laughs) But um, I don't have any. Sometimes if I don't have something in front of me, I don't always Mm -hmm. remember. But one of the things. You you can send it to me later and I'll put it in the description box for the people listening. Okay, good, good. One of the things that she said is that with Restorative Yoga, it allows you to get to know yourself. Um, in a way that you can't do just by talking. You just can't do it just by talking. And so, uh, and that goes hand in hand with the things that I learned through, you know, um, yoga and learning about the mind and the body from a different perspective. Uh, Because in traditional mental health, they kind of leave out the how emotions stay in the body when we suppress it what it does to the body uh because they make it uh even though we know trauma can be an event but trauma is really what it does to the body it's not just the event itself it's what it does to the body but the way society portrays it is how it makes us feel you know cognitively you know that part of it but it's actually, it is how it makes our body feels. And so it's about making a shift uh, because the way society is, society has disconnected us from our bodies. Mm. And uh, the more we get connected back to ourselves and kind of going back to what you were talking about, trust, that's where it starts. You know, when we're able to trust ourselves within our own body then we're able to trust others. And so the more we get to know ourselves, then we can, you know, know others and I guess you could say um, expand and grow. And so again, with self-care for black men, um, I did start um, one group, or actually two groups, um, up, uplifting black men. And that's an integration of um, mm. having different groups, I mean, having different topics the integrated self-care um, into that. And um, and with that, it can be, you know, I want men to experience so many different uh, practices and avenues when it comes to that. It doesn't have to be just, you know, yoga and meditation, um, but also, you know, when it comes to energy work and tapping and um, drumming and so many, there's so many things out there, especially that really connects you know, you with the body. Um, I really want men to experience that, especially black men. I know that when it comes to that, men are slower to come to stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But for the men who are exposed to it, they benefit so much from it. Um, mm-hmm. Another group that I have started is, uh, is um, 
uh, triad, uh, uh, oh, what's the name of the group? It's my group. Uh, Talk It Out Triad, Talk It Out Triad for Black Men. And um, I have recently um, started that out, I think maybe about a month or so ago. And uh, what that is, pretty much what it says, you know, um, like whoever, did, uh, everything is virtual uh, right now. Well, I plan to keep it virtual too and uh, end up having some pop-up groups. But uh, pretty much with the Talk It Out Triad, what that's about is a place for men to be able to talk. And so it's the way I look at it, it's kind of two ways. Men say that they have nobody to talk to. Okay, you can come to this group and you can have somebody to talk to. And also to learn how to listen. Because the other thing is, uh, one thing that mm -hmm. I've discovered in my professional life, I can listen real good. But in my personal life, it's kind of like, you know, I kind of tell people, you know, men may suffer in silence and women may, we may express our feelings, but no one taught us how to process our feelings and emotions. So yeah. in saying that, meaning to sit there, to sit with our own feelings and to be able to sit with someone else's, you know, when they're going through something, because a lot of times you don't know what to do. You want somebody to feel better or you want to offer them advice or you know advice or want to resolve or fix something no it just let it be you know have that quietness and because of the way society is we don't understand the value of quiet and even the value of rest too and that's the other thing is to pretty much what i see with self-care for black men you know to continue to be you know inspiration and motivation but to also have groups, to also have um, a motivation, I mean, not motivation, a meditation piece component in it with other men um, leading this away and uh, collaborating and partnering with other, um, with uh, yoga teachers, with uh, meditation teachers, with therapists, with life coaches, with nutritionists, with uh, personal trainers, you know, mm. everything in that group, you know, to pretty much help men, you know, again, to heal, you know, thrive and grow so that, again, the more that you were able to unpack the mm. wound and the sorrows and everything else that's going on, then the more you're really able to achieve and, and to be able to uh, have joy you know, but, uh, but in essence, you know, that's how I see uh, self-care for black men and to eventually have a physical place, you know, because mm. right now everything is virtual um, or, you know, and I do have uh, a few people that offer where I, you know, if I need to have something uh, live or shall I say face to face, then I'm able to do that as well. But, you know, for right now is to really get out there, and, you know, let men know that we're here. And then uh, when they're ready, you know, we'll be here. We'll be here for them. That's awesome. That's awesome. So in, in closing, I want you to tell people um, where they can find you currently, um, where like plug all your socials, websites everything so for anybody out there listening I, again I, i've used some of your resources and i actually meant to follow with you i kind of been dragging my feet with it with about the yoga and things like that i need to get into because i'm also at the stage of therapy where i'm realizing I, I need i need i need a new resource a new tool now now it's it's, it's at that point so um so yeah where can people find you where can they contact you yeah yeah people can find stuff here for black men on um the website is called selfcareforblackmen.org, O-R-G. And then on Instagram, it is uh, selfcareforblackmen as well. On um, Facebook, it's, I want to say, yeah, it's selfcareforblackmen. Because I want to say I recently changed it. Um, but yeah, it's selfcareforblackmen on Facebook as well. And, um, and you can find contact information on those um, places too, because I can never remember the telephone number. <laughs> right, yeah, that, that's, that's where I'm at too. Just, just find my Instagram. Anything you need to know. Yeah, yeah. So you can either DM me or you could call. You know, 
And definitely, you know, men, you know, black men out there definitely call, you know, at least even if you just call and ask a question and, um, and even with the offerings that I have, I would just encourage you, even if you don't say a word, just come and listen, you know, just mm -hmm. come and listen, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. well, thank you so much, Sharon. This has been a great episode. Um, I have so many more questions I want to ask, but we'll probably save for a part two. Um, so for those of you all listening, I hope you all were able to take something away, something that you can add to your life, some new piece, a new piece of knowledge, because I know mental health is, is very important to me, and I consider myself a mental health advocate. Um, I definitely want to, I look forward to, to going more in depth in, into the field because I feel like I'm just now touching the surface in so many levels. So, um, again, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to my audience again, Sharon. Thank you for being on my show. Uh, looking forward to working with you in the future. Um, again, ladies and gentlemen who are listening, check the description box for any information um, that you may want to find to contact Sharon, contact myself in any kind of way. So, that's it until next time um you guys know how to do stay blessed and stay safe out there